Well, this message to the congregation of Laodicea is one that's probably, of the seven messages, the most familiar to people. If, if not the whole message, at least a couple of the phrases that are in this letter. You think of the statement of Jesus, I stand at the door and knock. Uh, it's one that most people have heard. Most people, however, have not heard it in the context in which it's given, but most people have heard that. It's usually used for a, as a gospel call, but if you notice today, it's actually not spoken to, it's not written to unbelievers, although I don't think it's inappropriate to say Jesus stands at the door and knocks in a gospel call. I don't, it's not a problem with that. It's just not the context in which it was given. It was written to believers, Jesus standing at the door and knocking is written to you and to me. The other phrase that's so familiar is because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I think um, if nothing else, then men who grew up in the church when they were teenage boys liked the fact that there was vomit in the Bible. I mean, that you know makes it memorable, if nothing else. That's the connotation of the spitting out. We've we kind of softened it a little bit in our modern translations. We prefer spit out better. Um, I'm not going to get gross this morning, but that's the connotation of what Jesus is describing. As familiar as those phrases are, and even the account to the church at Laodicea, this is probably not the church, however, that we want to line ourselves up with, is it? I mean, as we go through these seven churches, this is the last of the seven. We've looked at each of them. Uh, most of us would prefer to line ourselves up with the Church of Philadelphia that we looked at last week. And that was the church that had no words of, uh, of uh, condemnation or no words of correction. Jesus just gives them words of praise and encouragement. The same with the church at Smyrna. And so when we read through these seven churches and we look for points of relating, I think those are the churches that we're more likely to connect with. And at the church at Laodicea, we'd really prefer kind of to separate ourselves from it's the only church that doesn't receive any words of commendation, commendation, no words of praise. There are words of encouragement here. I hope you saw those as we read them. We're going to look at them a little more closely. But there's really no words of praise for what they're doing. In other words, it's a clear rebuke. So not only do we kind of want to distance ourselves from the church at Laodicea, there have been some who want to explain this away altogether. They read about the church at Laodicea and think, well, this is not a church at all. How could a Christian ever look like this? Don't go there. (laughs) Because Jesus doesn't. Jesus addresses the church at Laodicea. Jesus calls this church one of the seven lampstands. And Jesus very tenderly, especially in verse 19, says to those whom I love, I discipline. So don't look at other people's lives and think that you've got it all figured out. I know none of you do that, but I've heard others do that, and you know that temptation can be there, right? That's how we're wired. We're wired as little legalists. We say this, you know, or I say this all the time. That little legalist creeps up. We want to compare. We want to look at how other people are living. At least I'm not like them. Don't go there. The church at Laodicea is you and me. Our hearts grow cold at times. I think we're naive if we don't think that's true. It's not where we want to stay, though, is it? This is not the church that we want to be. 
And so the point of relation here, the point that we need to connect with is that we need to be revived. And this is continual. We grow cold so easily. How many times have we left church with a sense of fervor and zeal only to not even get out of the parking lot before something comes along and trips us up into anger or worry or fear? I would suggest today that this, now I know I've said this before of the other churches, that this is the most relatable church to us. I'm not going to say the most because if you say that all the time, then it, it It really undoes what you're saying. But I do think there are a lot of connections, points of correlation between the church in America and the church at Laodicea. When you think about our own affluence in our culture, our own education, the opportunities that we have, our abilities, if you think of just the ability to access information is like none other in in all of history. If you want to know anything, you can look it up right now. Please don't, but you can. So we have access. We have the ability to do things. We don't have to go and have our silverware forged and our pots and pans beaten from from metal. We just go to the store and buy it. Water comes out of our taps. We, We have access to so many things that make our lives abundant. Now, what we end up doing, however, is we also compare ourselves constantly. And so we look at how other people live and think, well, I'm not as rich as they are, or I don't have as much as they have, or I don't have, I haven't, I'm not as educated as they are, or I haven't achieved what they've achieved. But let's be objective about this. If we look not only around the world today, but throughout history, we enjoy some of the greatest affluence that has ever been in terms of our access to things. Again, education, access to that, and the ability to get things done. Now, hear me out. I'm not saying this to shame any of us. There's nothing to be ashamed about that, right? None of us asked to be born at this point in history, in this location, to have the things that we do. We didn't get to pick that. There is no shame, and there's no sin in having wealth, having education, or having abilities, how we steward those things is an altogether different matter because that is where sin does creep in. You see, the Laodiceans were very well off. They were very successful. And what they had done is they, they began to find their identity and their worth in that. And that mindset began to creep into the church. And doesn't that sound familiar? Isn't that our own context in the American church where we... We, we, we look on the outside. You know, man looks on the outside, God looks at the heart. And we create the standards for what we're doing and how we're moving through life based on really worldly standards. And the culture begins to affect us. Consider some of the issues that shape the church, uh, the city of Laodicea and the church there. I mentioned that the city was wealthy. There were two main crossroads. Uh, so... Commerce could happen from every direction, and it did. And the city grew in wealth and prosperity. It had also become a medical center. It had a well-known medical college there. And the specialty was eye care. They had developed a salve from the clay, Phrygian clay, 
that was naturally occurring in the rocks there, and they used it to treat everything from glaucoma to pink eye. So this was the place to come if you had problems with your sight. They had the treatment for you. They were also known for their fine clothing. There were black sheep in this part of what is modern-day Turkey today, and they developed from this a black wool so that the wealthy, the well-to-do, many of the Laodiceans wore all black. Black was the new black in Laodicea. It was what, if you were anybody, that's how you were dressed. They were proud of their wealth and success so that when uh, they, um, as, as time went on, they became more and more self-reliant. And we talked about earthquakes last week. They also experienced uh, the earthquake of, uh, in, in AD 60. It almost leveled the town. And Rome came to them with an offer for help, and they turned it down. They said, we don't need anything. And they rebuilt the city with their own resources. For all their wealth and success, however, they lacked one of life's basic things, basic needs, basic necessities, and that is clean water. The nearby Lycus River stayed stirred up, had a kind of a white mud in it. They couldn't, they couldn't make it drinkable. And so they ended up, uh, the Romans built aqueducts to pipe water in from about five miles away from a series of hot springs. And what happens to water that's hot that is then moved through aqueducts for five miles? It becomes lukewarm. It becomes stagnant. And so you have, uh, on top of that, calcium bicarbonate in the water. And you know, we in Florida know what happens when, when, when water becomes room temperature. Uh, I do this. I have, water, I have a water bottle in the fridge here. When it sits out, as long as it's cold, I don't taste, it doesn't taste bad to me. If I let it get lukewarm, if I let it sit out on the counter and I come and take a, a drink out of it, I taste all the minerals in it. So this is what was happening here was they had this water that stunk as it came into the city. It literally made people sick. And so once again, as we have seen with each of the churches, we hear the voice of the good shepherd who comes, who not only knows his flock, but he knows their circumstances. He knows the conditions in which they live. He knows what they're facing. He knows what their struggles are. And I point this out not only because of these things that relate to what Jesus said to them about their eyesight, about spewing out, about clothing, uh, needing white clothes to cover their nakedness, and all of these points of connection. But I point this out to us today that Jesus knows what your conditions are as well. Don't, Don't fall for the lie that he somehow doesn't care about the little things in your life or isn't aware of them. This demonstrates, and we've seen it with each of the seven churches, that Jesus is aware of the most minute details in our lives. And he demonstrates this by how he comes to the church at Laodicea. From a human standpoint, they had the best eye care and treatment, but Jesus calls them blind. They were wealthy and successful. They even told Rome, I need nothing. But Jesus calls them poor and pitiable. They were dressed to the nines with their fine clothing, and Jesus says, You're naked and wretched. On the outside, they had it all together. They portray the appearance of solid lives. You'd look at them and think, you know, they're, they're doing it right. But something is tragically wrong. 
They are resting on their own resources, resting in their own human success, and that account is not what it seems. Now, we understand that we're born sinners. That's something that is um, important to us in the Reformed faith. We understand original sin. We understand that no one has to, to, to teach us how to sin. Uh, I always invite anyone who's not, not clear on this that, to sign up for nursery duty. You, you, you don't have to teach children how to be selfish. You don't have to teach, teach children how to fight. You don't have to teach children how to sin. We come to this world knowing that. And we understand that we're, before Christ saves us, we're spiritually bankrupt. Nothing in my hands I, I bring simply to the cross I cling. We come empty. There's nothing in our account. We don't contribute anything to our salvation. But as believers, do you realize that we can live as if we are spiritually bankrupt at times? When we do not rest in the riches of Christ, but rest in our own self-worth and accomplishments, we are living as spiritually bankrupt. When we try to live in our own strength and our own wisdom and disregard the Spirit's indwelling presence in our lives, we're living as spiritually bankrupt. When we pretend to be independent, self-reliant, instead of resting in the care of the Good Shepherd, we are living as if we are spiritually bankrupt. I know there are probably stories and movies that have been made. I couldn't think of a good example, but you're familiar with the storyline. The most impoverished person you can imagine hears that they have a long-lost dead uncle who's left them a billion-dollar inheritance, and yet they go on living like nothing has changed. That's what the Laodiceans had come to. They were living like they had not received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we do the same thing when we walk in their pattern. And so because of this, Jesus says to them, I'm about to spew you out since you're neither hot nor cold. And that was an image that they could all understand. This wasn't random language. Again, we've seen this with each of the seven churches. And the language really comes to life when we understand the context of each of the seven churches. And when you imagine that this was their daily experience, this lukewarm, tepid water that stunk, that caused them to, at times, vomit, you can understand how this message of Jesus to them really gripped their hearts. It was a stern message, no doubt, but it wasn't a harsh message. We see the grace of God in his love toward them and desire to discipline them, to bring them to repentance. As with each message to the seven churches, Jesus addresses, begins by addressing the angel of the church and then tells them something about himself, reveals something about himself that they need to know. Look in verse 14. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So part of the problem for the Laodiceans is their self-deception. They thought they were doing just fine. They weren't aware of a problem. Life was going on and everything was just peachy. They weren't concerned. And so what they needed to hear was the truth. They needed to hear the hard truth and the whole truth. And so Jesus comes to them as the amen. You remember, in, if you grew up with the King James Version and you heard the, the, the life and ministry of Jesus through the gospel, what did Jesus commonly begin his teachings with? What statement? Amen, amen. Verily, verily was the King James Version. And if you grew up with that, that's what you know. And then later, our more modern English translations say, truly, truly. And now, like the ESV just says, truly. But it was this emphatic. It was the Hebrew, amen, amen. That was the word that Jesus used. 
So that is what Jesus is coming to them as, the truth. And in the Hebrew, when we add the definite article to that word, amen, it, 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 it becomes this, uh, the God of truth is how it's represented in the Old Testament. So when we put that together with the amen, with the faithful and true witness, of which both of those words are rooted in the same word for amen, we have this very emphatic statement of Jesus confronting his church, of saying, as he did in John, I am the truth. He's not confronting them with the truth as a concept or an idea. He is confronting them as the truth, as a person who is the truth. He adds to that the beginning of God's creation. And you might think, but Jesus isn't created. And you're right, he's not. (laughs) Jesus is the Son of God and has existed with the Father and the Spirit uh, forever. He is not created. So what is this speaking of? Well, this is pointing to the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's the new creation. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the, the, the first to be resurrected. We are looking to him. We're going to follow in his pattern of resurrection. And while we may not get that when we read it, if we don't study this, the Laodiceans would have understood it. And the reason they would have understood it is because recently they had gotten a letter written by Paul in the not-too-distant past, that was sent to the church at Colossae. You remember in our study of Colossians a few years ago, in that letter is that phrase, that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Well, at the end of the book, you may not remember, but in Colossians 4.16, Paul gives instruction for that letter to be sent on to the church at Laodicea. So this, that letter that we studied, Colossians, came and was read and studied and looked at here in the church of Laodicea. It's there that we read that he was the firstborn from the dead, that he might be preeminent. And so it's the resurrection of Jesus that's being emphasized here because as we looked at Easter, it's the resurrection that proves Jesus is who he says he is, the promised one, the redeemer, the Messiah, the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. And it also proves that the Father approved of his death and resurrection, that the atonement was met that it satisfied the just requirement of a holy God. That's what the resurrection proves. So when we layer together then that Jesus is the amen, the, 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 the God of truth revealed in the person of Jesus with the validation of the resurrection, you have this very strong confronting message to the church at Laodicea. Jesus confronts the church with the truth, which is also known as reality. This was a reality check, and it's what they needed because they were stagnant. They were lukewarm. They didn't even realize there was a problem. And he comes to shake them and wake them. You're not living like, or you are living rather like spiritually bankrupt people, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And they're thinking to themselves, what? We've got it all. Poor, blind, and naked. We're doing great. They needed this message to overcome the self-deception that they were caught in. They needed this reality check. And that is the message to the church here and to us today. In verse 15, Jesus says, I know your works. And that's become a familiar phrase to us. He says that to four or five of the churches. But he says to all the churches, I know. That's how he starts out after he addresses them. I know, displaying that intimate knowledge. But most of the churches, he says, I know your works. 
And then he goes on to describe their works. But what does he do here? He says, I know your works, and then he doesn't list any. He says, you're neither hot nor cold. And the implication of this is that they're not doing any works, or they're not doing the works that they should be. They are not loving others, but are worshiping at the idol of self. They're not giving of their resources, but are worshiping at the idol of wealth. They're not living out their faith in bold witness, but are worshiping at the idol of comfort and convenience and ease. And the reason I use this term for ideology here to describe them is because that's what idolatry does. I said ideology, didn't I? Idolatry. You know what I meant. I do this all the time, especially when I'm sleep deprived. Idolatry. There we go. The reason I'm using the word idolatry to describe this is this is what idolatry does. Idolatry deceives us. It starts out by distracting us and kind of wooing us away into loving something else more than God. We begin to put our identity in something or we, put our, we want something. We think something's going to satisfy us. Something's going to quench our thirst. Something's going to make us truly happy or feel meaningful. And then that thing, as our affections grow for that, we become self-deceived. We become unaware. We become numbed by that. That's what idolatry does. And through that complacency and that distraction, then we begin living a life uh, like the Laodiceans, like we're not a redeemed people. We live a life like we're spiritually bankrupt. Jesus adds, Would that you were either hot or cold, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now we understand hot, right? That's zeal, that's passion. He uses that word later in the letter. We get that. Sometimes with cold, we think cold... I think we mistake cold to be more like what lukewarm actually is. I think we put the spectrum up. Hot, If hot is zealous or passionate, uh, having a fervor for Christ, then cold would actually be someone who's never even heard the gospel, someone who's never even known or tasted of the grace of Jesus Christ. It's what's in the middle, that lukewarm position that we need to be concerned about. Because this is someone who has tasted They have seen that the Lord is good. They have been redeemed and bought back from a life of sin. But then they begin living like they never knew the grace of God. And what an affront this is to the lavish love that our Savior has shown us when we do this. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Because of the redeeming work of Christ and the indwelling power of the Spirit, our lives should produce the fruit of the Spirit. But what was happening at the church at Laodicea is that they had become fruitless trees. And what are fruitless trees but useless? Good for, for, for burning, cutting down and burning. Think of the fig tree as Jesus came into the city before the Passion Week and saw the fig tree that was withered and didn't produce fruit. It was useless. And that's what we live like. Jesus' reaction to this is, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, in the ESV, it sounds like I am going to spit you out of my mouth, like it's already been a determined decision. I think other translations capture the tense better, is I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. It is a word word of coming consequences if you don't repent. So this isn't a statement of judgment. It is a statement of discipline. It's designed to correct them, to bring them back to repentance. And that is the desire of the Good Shepherd with every act of discipline. When we think of 
of, you know, we're not perfect parents, so we don't do this perfectly in, an, in, in, a, in our own lives, but isn't our ultimate desire in parenting our children not to be punitive, to get them back when, they're, when, when, they, when they disobey, but actually to correct them, to lead them to live lives that are right, that are good, that are obedient. And that is what God, as our Heavenly Father, does, is He uses discipline and correction to lead us to repentance, not to, to get us back. This isn't punitive. If you look down at verse 19, we see that this is a loving act of discipline because those God loves, He disciplines or corrects. And, of course, the whole spitting out image was something that they understood. They got it. You and I read this and we think it's kind of weird. <laughs> Spew you out of my house, uh, mouth, uh, uh, lukewarm, hot, cold, okay, but when you understand how they live day in and day out without water source, that this was, their, this was their experience. And Jesus uses that so that they understand exactly what he means. Now, he doesn't just leave them with this image that they understand. He goes into detail next in verse 17. He gives them uh, the, the explanation of the diagnosis. He says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And that was the attitude of the Laodiceans, of the whole city. That was how they responded to Rome after the earthquake. We don't need anything. We're self-sufficient. We don't need your help. And that attitude had filtered its way into the church so that believers in this city were beginning to live in the same way. I've got this. Now, if you don't think this is a temptation in America then I would encourage you to, to pray that God would, would help you understand this. Because this is a temptation for all of us. Even if you, th- if you think you're poor and you think that you don't have anything and you're really struggling in life so that this isn't a temptation, this is a temptation for every one of us in this room. We, we're, we're, we don't even realize, I mean, we're, we're sitting here on, well, you guys are, on these nice cushioned seats. And we have this air conditioning that's blowing in. I'm not even breaking a sweat. Um, you know, glass to keep the mosquitoes out. We're going to go out and we're going to get in nice cars that you just press the pedal, it's going to take you home. And you're going to eat delicious food. And we could go on and on and on. And these are not bad things. But these things that are so comfortable can kind of woo us to sleep spiritually. And we can forget what we truly need and who is our true provider. And when we do forget, we become as one who is wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. These five adjectives that Jesus describes them are the very opposite of how they perceive themselves. So he comes to them with these stark contrasts in order to get their attention so that they might see not the truth as an idea, but the truth as a person, Jesus himself, that they would see him and their need of him. Paul Gardner writes, Everything that Laodicean Christian and non-Christian alike would have said about themselves is here denied by Jesus as he disciplines this church. Good black clothing, good eye ointment, material prosperity, none of this could hide the fact that the church was disobedient to its calling to be a lampstand and a witness following the one faithful and true witness, Jesus Christ. You see, money isn't the problem here. Money is not the root of all evil. What is the root of all evil? The love of money 
And so the same is true with success. Success isn't the problem. But when we begin finding our identity in that, when we begin to, to or begin thinking that that is what people need, is the most important thing that people need to know about us, and so we go around kind of justifying ourselves, like, this is what I've accomplished. We do this in so many ways. We don't just do this through our words. We do this in the way we dress, in the way we drive, in the houses we live in, and so forth. When, when our hearts shift, it's not the houses, the cars we drive, or the clothing. That's not the problem, not the success, not the money. It's where our hearts go. It's when we want people to find some kind of respect for us or love for us because of what we've achieved or accomplished. That is where the problem creeps in. We make something an idol, and we begin to worship it over Jesus. So the Laodiceans now, they understand the problem, they understand the diagnosis and the explanation, now they're ready for the solution. Verse 18, Jesus says to them, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. When you hear the tenderness in his words, he doesn't come as a boss, He comes as one who says, I counsel you. I'm coming to you as a loving father. I'm telling you, this is the best thing for you. This is what you need to do. And it really sets the tone of the whole message, or it should set the tone of the whole message in how we understand this. It's direct, it's firm, but it's not harsh. Those who I love, I reprove and discipline, Jesus says. So be zealous and repent. He encourages them to buy from him gold and white garments and salve, pointing to these items. These are all items they thought they possessed. These were the things that they took pride in. They had gold. They were, they were wealthy people, lots of commerce in and out of this town. They had the fine clothing. They weren't, they weren't naked. Naked and ashamed, what are you talking about? Salve? We've got the best salve in the whole world. Blind? We see just fine. What are you talking about? He's coming to say to them, I have the resources that you need. You need to come and buy these things. But lest we misunderstand what buying means, consider Isaiah 55.1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Is that not the gospel call? Without money and without price. All of these things have been paid for. Completely by Jesus. We have only to look to him in faith. He has paid the price so that we can buy without money. It's the opposite of how we think. Isn't it true that we, our default mode, that little legalist rises up? We think we have to earn it. We think we have to do it, that we have to achieve it. But as we have seen over and over again, in the economy of the kingdom of Jesus... It's all grace. The economy of this world, that's, that's karma, right? You get what you deserve. You have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You've got to try harder. Work at it. Get it done. Get busy. The economy of the kingdom has come and buy without money because it's all been paid for. We see it in Revelation. We saw it in Genesis. We saw it in our study in Acts and Colossians. It's, that's throughout Scripture. Man is not, never saved by works, saved by grace through faith alone. We have only to come and repent and acknowledge our need and receive by faith what Jesus freely gives to us. 
And this image then of Jesus that he paints for them is him standing at the door and knocking. And as I mentioned, this is often used as a call to people to come to faith, and that's fine. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's, not, you know, it's not problematic. It's just not what the text is describing. So if you're teaching the text, you don't need to go there. Uh, does Jesus call people? Yes, he calls his people. He stands at the door and knocks of his people, and, and they, uh, they respond. Maybe not on our timetable, but they do respond. But this is a passage of Jesus speaking to believers, speaking to his church. And I say speaking because even though it just says knocking, it goes on to say, if anyone hears my voice, so he is calling as well. And it's an invitation to join into fellowship, that he would come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And I think our minds quickly go to the Lord's Supper uh, it would have been great if I had lined this up last week and we had had this last week. But I want us to understand this is more than the Lord's Supper. It certainly could be used to point to the Lord's Supper and all that is ours in Christ and that he comes and meets with us in the Lord's Supper and nourishes us on the journey. But this is an invitation to us every moment of every day to walk in communion with Christ. Every moment of our lives is an opportunity to enjoy the fellowship of Christ. We don't have to come to church to have fellowship with our Savior. We don't have to come to the table to have fellowship with the Savior. I mean, how hard would that be to go that long? No, His knock and His call is to us each moment of every day to come and pull up a chair at this extravagant banquet of immeasurable riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. And yet, what do we do? We push the chair away and we go back to the dumpster. And we start pulling out the scraps of our own resources. And we rely on our own strength. And we live like we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. It's not a formula. It is a relationship with Christ. The one who has redeemed us. When we are unable to put one foot in front of the other, we are to look to him for strength. When we're unable to see the path in front of us, we are to go to him for sight. When we lack the resources that we need in our relationships, in our work, as we handle stress and anxiety and fear and worry, we are to trust in his unending resources. We're not going to an ideology. We're not going to a religion. We're not going to a set of rules. We are going to a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And the promise comes at the end, like each of those given to the other six churches, it is addressed to the one who conquers. And I've reminded us every week what this means, just in case there's anyone who maybe wasn't listening or who wasn't with us. Who is is the conqueror? Who is the overcomer? Well, 1 John tells us who that is. And this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. Who is it? John asks this question. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Again, we want to turn the overcoming into our doing. Like, what do I have to do to overcome? Give, you know, tell, tell me the list. Give me the, give me the steps that I need to overcome. No, Jesus is overcome. He is the overcomer. We're looking to him in faith and we become overcomers by trusting in him. But he is the one who has done it all. It's really a picture of his preserving us through this life, the one who overcame the death uh, or death and, and hell through his, through his death and resurrection. It is by faith alone in him that we become overcomers. And this is a reminder. Uh, 
Not only to us, because I think, again, we so often forget. We think we're saved by faith, but then we've got we to get on in this life and be sanctified by our works. No, we're saved by faith and we're sanctified by faith. It is a battle for faith. It's not a battle to perform, to earn, to, to gain or try and merit the favor of God, even after we're saved. We are to look continually to Christ, who would then produce in us those good works. But this is also a call to you who have yet to believe, that you would confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, that you might be an overcomer, that He was dead and raised from the dead to overcome sin and death. It is a call to you today that only through faith in Him that you too can be an overcomer. And then to the overcomer, the promise that is presented here is a seat on the throne with Christ. Where He is now seated, reigning forever, we will too join with Him. We cannot comprehend what that means. We can't even imagine. But the promise is there, that we will join with Him and reign forever. In this life, every one of us is going to experience seasons of lukewarmness to some degree. We don't stay hot all the time. We still battle against sin. Even though the penalty of sin has been dealt with, and we know that we are securely held in Christ's hand, we still continue to battle. And in that battle, there are going to be days, sometimes weeks, sometimes longer. And we don't want it. We, we, we're in these times and we're, we're thinking to ourselves, I don't want to feel this way. How do you change your affections? How do you change what you love? I mean, there certainly are disciplines in our lives that, you know, if you're... If you're Eating the wrong things, you stop, you know, quit putting them in your, in your pantry. You know, after a while, you kind of lose a taste for them. There's some disciplines and so forth that can be helpful. I'm not discrediting those. But I'm here to tell you the only one who can truly change your affections is the Redeemer. It is going to Him. It is battling to trust that He is the one who can change our hearts. He stands at the door and He knocks and He calls to each of us today. And He is full of grace. And He's offering to us that continued grace for this life, freely, without money, come and buy. The price has been paid. And so may we all hear His knock and hear His voice. May we look to Him and lean on Him and hear Him speak to us in this moment. The soul that on me has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to His foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you have us in the palm of your hand, that you will never forsake us, that even when our hearts grow cold and we become lukewarm and useless, In any other situation in life, we know what the, the outcome of that would be. We would just be discarded. But we hear your gracious call again and again to repent and to look to you for the resources that we need. Lord, warm our hearts today. Make us hot with passion for you that we wouldn't waste our lives or go on living as if we just have to get through life 
Lord, help us to see that the days count. The moments matter even when we don't understand how or why. That you have given each of us the number of days that you have with a purpose. And even though we may not understand it, Lord, would you help us to trust you that there is purpose in each moment. That we would walk continually confident in the one who holds us in his hands. Lord, only you can do this, and so that we pray now that you would make our hearts love you more today. In Jesus' name, amen.